as they would often say to me, what are you going to be a Beatle? And if you really thought about it, you were like, uh, that kind of is a long shot, I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I didn't really have a choice in the end. I, I really didn't. I, I just could not relate to anything. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success, obstacles overcome, plan Bs, terrible first jobs, and the passion to pursue a dream. Stephen Van Zandt is an interviewer's dream. I'm very comfortable being a rich rock star. He's honest. Except I'm not one. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's thoughtful. I should never have left the band. And yet, everything I accomplished, I accomplished because I left the band. And he's funny. There was plenty of looking in the mirror and, and saying, what a putz, you know. <laughs> Very funny. Hold on, let me, <laughs> let me write that one down. Uh, that's a, uh, what a putz. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Stephen Van Zandt several times. And each time I hear stories that I've never heard before. Van Zandt is an admired musician best known for his work as a guitarist and vocalist in Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. He wrote songs for, produced, and helped create another terrific and beloved band, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. And Van Zandt has had a long and critically acclaimed solo career, mixing music and activism, most notably on his powerful 1985 anti-apartheid anthem, Ain't Gonna Play Sun City. And then there's the TV career, as Tony Soprano's consigliere, Silvio Dante, on The Sopranos, and then starring in his own show, Lilyhammer. So it's been quite a career, but it wasn't always so. At the time of our interview, Stephen Van Zandt was reflecting on all of these chapters and more for his new memoir, Unrequited Infatuations. So it was a perfect time to talk to him about the early years, the before the cheering started years, starting with those first gigs, playing for tens of people, maybe hundreds, and eventually thousands, down the Jersey Shore. You're playing gigs, you're playing bars with your band as a teenager. Is there a gig where, hey, you know, we got 25 people to show up for this thing. That was, you know, we're we're in show business now. Uh, Well... You, you know, it, it happened so slowly, you know, that it wasn't like that one moment, you know, like, oh, wow, you know, maybe we can make a living doing this. You know, it was always uh, unclear. It was, it was always a little bit vague. You know, can we, in fact, make a living doing this? And that was true up until probably the, the one gig that really worked ended up being the residency we did at Southside Charlie and Asbury Jukes at the, at the Stone Pony. Uh, there wasn't much before that, you know, and, and 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 really much after, other than other than waiting till we had a hit single. Uh, so, so that was a that was a really big a big moment. But it, it, again, it happened slowly. We went to this club, which had, I think, the roof had caved in, and you know they were going to close the club. We made a deal that we would take the door, um, and they could have the bar. But we would play anything we wanted. Now that and which never happened in New Jersey before, most of the country, the the bar band business was built on playing the top forty hits that were on the radio. You know, it wasn't you weren't encouraged to, to be original or anything like that. You know, maybe maybe there was some of that. You know, on the West Coast, perhaps 
but but we never saw it. You know, there wasn't really that kind of encouragement. So we kind of really broke the rules by playing whatever we wanted to. And it was 50 people the first week, and then 100, and then 200, and then they fixed the roof, and then, you know, 300, and uh, slowly, slowly built up. And at, at that same moment, Bruce had gotten signed, which was a big deal for somebody local to have a record deal. So he had gotten some notoriety from it, even though his first two records didn't do anything. So because his two records didn't do anything, he couldn't work. You know, it, it's, it's kind of a bizarre uh, kind of um, situation in, in our business. It's easier to work before you're in the business. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, well, once you're in the music business, now you got to play certain places and do certain things, you know, you know and, and of course, you got to pay your band and things like that, you know. So Bruce starts hanging out with us also. And I think that that added a little bit of extra excitement to the, to the scene. And we really did create a scene. We created one of those scenes that, that you know, you read about, you know, like Liverpool or Hamburg. How much of part of uh, that scene was the upstage club? That was the school you went to, to to learn how to play, how to react, you know, how to interact with the band, interact with the audience. That was a very primitive and, and, and wonderfully important schooling for us uh, because there was no booze. So you could get in there from 16 years old on and we, we would work from eight at night till five in the morning. Was it your Hamburg? You know, people who follow the Beatles know the Beatles story, um, know that not, they, they went to Hamburg and they just played all night and they came yeah, back guess, a much guess, better band. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. But 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 we weren't really, um, for some reason, I'm trying to think now, but we basically were never bands at the upstage. It was just, a, it was just always jamming, you know? <laughs> That's why I, I hate to jam to this day, but because it was like you were jamming eight hours a night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good part of your education. You know what I mean? Like we would form bands and then try and play other places. It's even a little strange thinking about it right now. I, I never, it never occurred to me till this moment. You know, there was a house band, uh, which was uh, Margaret and the Distractions, who <laughs> was a, the co-owner, co you know, the, the owner's wife. And uh, I don't know why this is. It's a, it's a curiosity even to me right now. But, but we would form bands. We, we would form a different band every three months. But we'd play other places, you know, right. or try to. And, and then, you know, it wouldn't work and we'd break up and we'd come back and we'd jam because that was our only income. You'd make $5 a night if you played all night. And if you led the jam, uh, when only a few of us led, led the jams, you know, I think it was me and, and Bruce and maybe Southside, you know, maybe one or two other guys, you'd get $15 a night. And so that was three nights a week. So that $45 is all, is all we lived on, you know. You're living large at that point. Yeah, because, you know, the, uh, the apartment was $150. And that was all of my expenses. You know, that was 100% of my expenses. So, so uh, once the juke started happening, I mean, you know, we went, we went from one night to two nights to three nights. $3 to get in, like 1,000 people a night. I have never been that wealthy since. I mean, that, <laughs> you know, that was, we're making, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand $9,000 a week. You know, now we had a big band, but still we're, we're, we're making, you know, I don't know what each, you know, six, $800 a week each. With that same $150 in bills. You told me once that the song that really kind of lit you up to start was Pretty Little Angel Eyes. 
Yeah, that was the uh, my epiphany song. I was a kid, you know, uh, up until um, really up until the Beatles played at Sullivan, which fe February night. 1964. Um, I, I was, you know, a kid that would buy singles, and um, I was a really slow, kind of dumb kid. I didn't really associate the records with the artists. You know, I didn't have that much of a desire to go see them. It was just a weird thing I, I, until I saw a band. You know, the, the band thing really appealed to me in a, in a whole different way. But up until then, the singles were kind of just divorced from reality in some kind of ways. But I had a dozen important singles that I listened to all the time and sometimes wore out. We would listen hundreds of times. Right. And it wasn't easy to wear out one of those vinyl, you know, <laughs> you could take one of those vinyl singles and throw it against the wall. Right. You know, what I mean, they were tough. And I remember wearing out uh, Pre Little Angel Eyes and, and, you know, Duke of Earl and various, you know, a couple of singles. I, you just kept playing over and over and over, you know, and, uh, and then they start and, to skip and you learn the records with the skip in them. Actually. <laughs> yeah. So when they play on the radio, it's like, wait a minute, what's, where's the skip? What happened? <laughs> at what point do you go see the Rascals uh, at a Pretty roller early. rink in Keyport, yeah. New Jersey? And all of a sudden it dawns on you. Wait, is, is that the, that moment where it dawns on you? Wait, you, you can do that? The first uh, band I ever saw was Little Anthony and the Imperials. And it didn't occur to me that I could do that. You know, they were just... Uh, they were great, and I saw them at a at a, at a uh, skating rink. Also, that was that was a big big venue in those days with the, with the skating rinks. A, a big moment for me uh, was seeing the Rolling Stones on Hollywood Palace, um, which was four months after the Beatles came. It's like in June, I want to say you know June 9th or so, and then going with my friend to uh, his uh, swim club and saw a group called The Mods, they were doing like, you know, Rolling Stones songs. That was a very big connecting the dots moment for me. You, you know, uh, they were the Rolling Stones as far as I was concerned, you, you know. And before that, you know, for the previous four months now, you know, the, the Beatles come in February, March, April, May, June, there was nothing but British domination on our charts. I mean, you know, all, virtually, you know, a, a couple of our bands survived. You know, the Beach Boys survived, the Four Seasons survived, and of course, soul music thrived. But for the most part, it was the Beatles, the Dave Clark Five, you know, the Kinks and the, uh, the Who were, I think, a little bit later. You know, Herman's Hermits, Searchers, Peter and Gordon, you know, Dusty Springfield. You know, it was nothing but English, English, English. You kind of were in that frame of mind that you really had to be English to be a rock and roll star. Until the summer of '65, that was true, and then and then the birds single-handedly changed that, and Bob Dylan followed that quick but quickly, and and, the, and then the whole the whole folk rock thing brought brought you know the 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 whole chart thing back to America, uh, you know, and, and suddenly it was a mixture of America and England again. But but for for those four months and and for for that whole year, uh, it was mostly British British. So here's. Here's a local group called the Mods, and they were the Rolling Stones in my mind. You know, I was like, "Wow, you can maybe you can you know you can do that in New Jersey. <laughs> you know, you know you can you can do that locally also." I mean, so that was a big, big connecting the dots moment. I don't know within a, within six months of that, maybe or a year of that, uh, the Rascals was the next band I saw who were 
phenomenal. I mean, they were maybe, arguably, the most exciting live band ever. I mean, and I, I say that, you know, having seen a few. You know, m- most of the white acts, you know, stood there and played. I mean, and, and even by the time we saw the Beatles, that's, w- that's what they did. You know, even though they weren't, they were quite a lot wilder in the early days. But by the time we saw them, which was halfway through their career, by the way, uh, you know, they were, they were quite sophisticated and quite sedentary. In that, in that they didn't have to do much but shake their hair and the people went berserk, you know. So they, they, were, they, were, you know, they weren't moving much. And most of the white bands didn't. It was a black thing. You know, it was a black thing to perform. And Mick Jagger was a, was a rare uh, exception. Um, but he was kind of like making up his own moves, you know, kind of you know, copying some James Brown moves and copying some Tina Turner moves. But Eddie Brigatti, the lead, the lead singer of the Rascals, one of the two lead singers, was a real dancer. Right. You know, I mean, he, he could really dance. <laughs> I mean, like for real. And he was just a whirlwind and... and uh, you know, not quite. Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Jackie Wilson. You know. Uh, uh, you know, but 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 really, really, really exciting. And uh, and they were they, they were just fabulously exciting. So so yeah. At that point, it really became a thing where wow, we really can do this in New Jersey. In the mid 1960s, growing up in Middletown, New Jersey, down the Jersey Shore, Stephen Van Zant started to think seriously about a life in music. And so I asked him. How did that conversation go at home? Well, let me give you a hint. Uh, my father was an ex-Marine Goldwater Republican. <laughs> and uh, it did not go over well. I feel bad for him, you know, thinking about it now, uh, of course, because um, this, was, this was the biggest revolution, um, I think, arguably, in, in, in generational, you know, in, in the history of the generation and the biggest generation gap in history up until now, which um, I think this one rivals it actually, you know, in a more, in a more subtle way. Uh, what's going on right now is actually, I think the, the second and maybe even the first biggest generation gap in history back then it was, it was cataclysmic. I mean, it was, it was a grand Canyon uh, of, of, you know, uh, of generation gaps. Long ago, you said to me, you've heard of the generation gap. We were it. <laughs> <laughs> you look it up in a dictionary. It's me and my father. So if that was the case, how did you get your first guitar? And did you play at home? Um, well, yeah. I mean, um, you know, having a hobby was not a problem. <laughs> you know, uh, they must have bought me my first guitar, obviously, which was an Epiphone. I think they were fine, you know, as long as it didn't, you know, nobody was taking it seriously. I mean, as they would often say to me, what are you going to be a Beatle? <laughs> you know, and if you really thought about it, you were like, uh, that is, that kind of is a long shot, I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, like I've said in the past, fortunately or unfortunately, I didn't really have a choice in the end. I, I really didn't. I, I just, could not relate to anything. I did not belong on this planet. I was not going to go to college. I didn't want to. I didn't want to work for a living. <laughs> Ironic how that turned out. Hmm. Uh, I didn't want to go in the military. You know. I, you know. I, I just didn't fit in. So I ended up being one of the few freaks. You know. And 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 literally, this is what brought me and Bruce together. Was me and him were really two of the 
biggest freaks in New Jersey. I mean, I mean, we really were freaks. We really were, you know, misanthropic. You know, we 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 didn't fit in, and, and we're. Um, and it wasn't out of some courageous, noble, sticking to our, you know, our passions. You know, we were just, you know, bums. <laughs> we, we 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 had no talent other than other than playing music. You know, so I mean, it's yeah. ironic because years later you would play, as we mentioned, in front of you know thousands of times in front of thousands of people. But as you once said to me, as a rock and roller in New Jersey in the sixties. Uh, you were not popular. You know, the Stones and the Beatles, that was fine. They could be popular. But you as the local guy with long hair, no, not so much. It, no, you, you, you didn't even get the girls. You know, uh, you know, the girls were still into the sports guys uh, for, I don't know, five more years. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it didn't, it didn't become hip really until, uh, you know, I don't know, mid-70s or, or something. You were just, you were just, you know, literally some, some kind of degenerate, you know, weirdo. And so, um, you know, I ended up getting kicked out of, uh, let me, I don't know, I'm not sure if I got kicked out of school first or kicked out of the house because I was kicked out of school or kicked out of school because I was kicked out of the house. But, but, <laughs> but both happened pretty much simultaneously because of my long hair. And I went to live with my girlfriend for a while, and 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 then uh, I kind of felt bad for my mother, so I, uh, you know, actually cut my hair, which was you know traumatic, and uh, and and then went back to school to graduate. But we didn't. We 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 had a problem with each other. Again, there was no precedent for this behavior. There was no precedent for our generation questioning the older generation this was a, a new concept you know and, and and then the vietnam war is happening and 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 that was really the first war that people were like wait a minute why are we doing this again and so questioning the government was a new idea it was a generation that were, were no no way to speak to each other and we were just an embarrassment to our parents we were just like uh, and they didn't they didn't deserve it because they're coming from that innocent World War II generation where everything was just how it was. You know what I mean? There was no no controversies, no scandals of, of you know, no generational problems. Yeah. You, you grew up and you became your parents. Did you come close to getting drafted? Yeah, I got drafted and I went down there and um, I, and I basically just kind of talked my way out of it, you know. So in those late 60s years, you're, you're 18, you're 19. Are you thinking, yeah, this is going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to pursue the music and it's a slog, but it's, it's going to work. I'm going to be a professional musician. Not exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm trying. We're doing different types of bands. I went on the road with one band and uh, we're trying all kinds of different bands. And then basically, um, you know, Bruce gets signed. So there's a gap in, in between, you know, Bruce gets signed as a solo guy. He reveals uh, to John Hammond, one of the legends of all time in, in, in history. By the way, John, I'm not a solo guy. <laughs> Although, you know, he would become one later as well as a band guy. But at that point, I had been with him in his room when he was playing songs by himself. But, you know. We were band guys. I mean, the bands were where it was at. So he told John and at his managers and everybody, listen, uh, 
I'm not really a, a solo guy. I'm really a band guy and I'm calling the band back. So he called the band back in and, um, and I, and I was kind of rejected from that situation. And so I, you know, they just didn't need a second guitar player, you know, who, who needed the, who needed the extra expense, you know, kind of a thing. So I quit the entire business at that point. I, you know, I, I just, I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I felt as though we had missed the boat. All the great music had been made and we missed it. And that was going to be that, you know, everything after that was going to be redundant. And I wasn't all that wrong, but, 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 you know, at that point, this is 72, 73. And I go to work uh, construction. So I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with music. And I work construction for two years and I'm playing football on the weekend. And I, and I broke my finger still, still bent and, uh, you know, got on the, on the field surgery. Uh, the guy just pulled it, pulled it into place more or less. And, and so to exercise my finger back to health, I took a job um, uh, playing piano with um, a, a bunch of ex mods that that same group I had seen. So the band, the drummer of that band happened to be a cousin of a Dovell. <laughs> and we became the band for the Dovells. One of the, one of the oldies acts uh, who had a couple of the greatest records ever made, Bristol Stomp, you can't sit down. Uh, so that got me back into music, just just by weird circumstance of breaking my finger. And then and then coming out of that, I would then start Southside Giant Asbury Jukes, you know. So there was that, you know, very weird road getting back into music. So when you were working construction, was it? Yeah, I'm definitely done. And were you at mm. peace with that? Or was it, uh, did you ever have, look, you guys spent a lot of time together. Was there a, like a, uh, all right, I got to go tell Bruce. Okay, I got to go tell Southside and others there. Fellas, it's not going to happen for me. Is there that conversation with them? Well, no, it, it was Bruce's band that rejected me. You know, you know Bruce, Bruce, in reassembling a band to now start his career, right. a recording career, um, the, the managers and everybody just felt that was unnecessary. So I, I was rejected from that situation. Uh, Southside at that point, I'm not sure what was, what he was doing. So there was that, so was that, there was a sort of a, a two year gap in between right before Bruce got signed. The last thing me and Southside were doing was Southside and the kid, which was a country blues duo, you know? So we had kind of reduced everything to two people uh, living in Richmond, Virginia with another uh, girlfriend down there. That's pretty far then, away from Asbury Park. Yeah, for some reason, we had gotten popular in Richmond through the years. Uh, I think it was because of Bruce's first manager uh, or second manager, uh, Tinker. I think he had a connection in Virginia for some reason. Uh -huh. So we went down there with two or three of our bands. Um, you know, Steel Mill, the Bruce Springsteen band. And we would play Richmond, Virginia, you know, and then come home. I don't know why. That's the first time we met the Allman Brothers. We, we played with them at a, at a bar, at a, at a club gig. During the two years of the work in construction, uh, was there anything from home about, hey, Stephen, you know, we understand, you know, the dream is not happening. Any kind of meeting of the minds with your family or were they well, fine with the fact that the music thing was over? Oh, yeah, they were relieved, of course. Yeah. I mean, um, I had to go to my father to get the job, you know, because my father and all of my uncles were in the construction business, you know. So I had to I had to go to my father 
I had I had built up so uh, I had gotten in debt because I had bought a big amp for the steel mill band, and if I'm thinking we're going to be rock stars then, and um, they're still paying that off, so I had to go to them, and they they were nothing but relieved. Of course, now I'm going to join real society, you know, um, and 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 I and I was pretty much trying to give it a shot. I, I, I was trying to get into it. You know what I mean? I, I had, you know, half of my blood is, is from Calabria, you know? So we're, you know, we're, <laughs> we're the guys who build the highways and, right. uh, you know, uh, it's a very working class bloodline, you know? Uh, you worked on Route 287 in New Jersey, right? That's right. And yeah, that's, that's a good road, my friend. You did good Thank work. You. you did good work Thank there. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, Nicely done. I take great pride in that. Yeah, writing uh, all those songs and producing all those songs and playing on all those songs and performing. That was good, too, by the way. That was good, too. But well, that, we, got, we got there. We got there eventually. Yeah. But that Route 287, yeah. that's pretty good. Speaking of getting there eventually, you write I Don't Want to Go Home, which becomes locally a huge. I mean, going to college in Philadelphia in the in mid-late 70s, that was one of the songs that you just you needed to know. And yeah, nice, nice. that was a band that you just needed to know. So uh, where does the uh, the desire, the confidence, the I can do this in terms of writing, uh, when does that start to happen? That was an important moment. And, and that was the best thing that came from the uh, old E-Circuit year. I mean, it, I shouldn't say that because it was, it was an important year for many reasons. Meeting all of, all of those heroes and pioneers that I didn't know that much about. I keep in mind, I'm a 60s kid. So I had to learn about the 50s. You know, I, I didn't, I, I, I missed that first part of, of the rock, of rock and roll history. So I was anxious to learn about it and meet them and talk to them. And, you know, uh, I had been writing songs uh, since, uh, I don't know, since 67. So this is, this is you know, five, six years into of, of, of trying to write songs. And I just didn't, didn't like any of them. I, I just, I, I couldn't relate to them. I didn't like them. And I'm on this tour and I said to myself, this is like one big college. There's one, there's one big education experience here, which I'm really appreciating. I said, I should really take that to the limit. I should, I should really take the education part into my composition problems. And, and I decided, okay, let me, let me analyze this. This might have been one of the first things I ever used the analysis part of my brain that would come in handy later with, with politics. You know, I said, let me, let me analyze this, you know. Where does writing begin? Where does rock and roll songwriting begin? And I decided it begins with Lieber and Stoller. It begins with, you know, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who had written, um, you know, Charles Brown, Hard Times, and, and Hound Dog, Big Mama Thornton, and, and, uh, and Jailhouse Rock, you know, you know, you know some, of the, some of the Elvis Presley greatest songs, and, uh, and then the Coasters and Drifters, and, you know. And they were not only that, not only the 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 ultimate writers, but they were the they were the first really writer producers, which was also very important to me because well, that's what I wanted to do the most, and that still remains to this day. You know, you know, the writer producer part of me has always been uh, more important to me than the than the performer or the guitar player part of me. You know, but anyway, so I decided, okay, I'm going to write a Lieber and Stoller song. For the Drifters, I, I had met the Drifters on on the road. I met Benny King, who was you know one, one of the many Drifters. And I said, I'm 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 gonna write a, I'm gonna write a specific Libra and Stoller song for Benny King and the Drifters, you know. And I wrote, I don't want to go home. I, I wanted to come up with one original chord change 
which I think I did, you know, and, and that does not mean anything for most of, of your listeners or viewers here, but, but um, the one, five, six, four chord change, you know, uh, G, D, E minor, C, uh, I had never heard in any other, in any other song. And I, and I, and I, I went back and listened to everything I could listen to. And in my, in my first original song, I wanted to have an original chord change if possible, you know? So I did that and I didn't have the courage to give it to Benny King and the Drifters. So <laughs> when we ended up getting Southside Johnny signed, I said, well, that, you know, we'll, 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 I'll do it with Johnny. And because we didn't really have a harmony thing, um, we, I kind of rearranged it, you know, for, for the jukes. When I, when I recut it for my Soul Fire album, I, I did it more in the original way I had written it, which had the background vocals answering, answering the lead vocal, you know. That was a, a huge, huge, huge breakthrough. One of the most important breakthroughs of my writing, uh, you know, abilities. And, and, and to this day, when I do master classes on writing, I still use that, that concept of writing a song for somebody else. Uh, I find to be the most useful tool in, in writing. Stephen Van Zandt would go on to do a lot of writing for his solo career, for the band Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and for many other musicians. It's one of the many compelling chapters in Van Zandt's memoir, Unrequited Infatuations. There's always so much to talk about with Stephen Van Zandt, so of course, there's a part two to our conversation. Next time on Before the Cheering Started, leaving the E Street Band for what Van Zandt calls international liberation politics. And I'm, you know, under a blanket sneaking into Soweto while my friends are buying their first mansions. You know, <laughs> you know, you think, what the hell am I doing here? That's next time in part two of our conversation with Stephen Van Zandt. This episode was written, co-produced, and co-edited by me, guitar playing as well. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey. <laughs>